Uh, right, our Bible reading this morning is Psalm 118, 118. You'll find it on page 616 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, or somewhere on your phone if that's what you're using. Have you remembered how we started the service? We'll see. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let's um, try that again. Uh, There are five of them, four now and one right at the end. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live. I will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, but the Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nigel. Let's pray. Father, as always, we pray that you would enable us to reflect on your nature and character and to respond appropriately. Amen. It would be very helpful if you could make sure you have that psalm we've just heard read open in front of you. It's Psalm 118, and you'll find it on page 616 in the Church Bibles. I think you'll find uh, that Lucia may uh, find it a little bit difficult to keep up on the screen because I will be jumping around in it. Uh, But while you're looking uh, that up, I'll say a few words of general introduction to it. 
Uh, there is no superscription to that psalm, and so we don't know for, for certain who wrote it, or indeed the occasion for or on which it was written. The style and content is very similar to some other psalms of King David. And for that reason, I think it's likely that King David uh, is the author. And I will certainly be making that assumption in this sermon. As for the purpose of the psalm, well, some people think that it was written as part of the temple liturgy. I personally think that's uh, unlikely because it is very, very personal in some places. However, we do know that it was subsequently used in collective worship. Uh, In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, we read about what happened some hundreds of years later when the temple foundation was relayed after the exile. And we hear that after this foundation was laid, the priests and the Levites took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by King David, King of Israel. Hello? It's the door. The doorbell. Well, yeah, I gathered that. (laughs) Shall I start again? Um, uh, We gather that the, the priests and the Levites took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, King of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever, which is, of course, a very near quote uh, from Psalm 118, and which incidentally shows that at least the people of Ezra's day believed that David was the author. More importantly, we know that by the time of Jesus, Psalms 113 through 118 were used at Passover meals, some of them before the meal and some after. And the last one to be sung or said was Psalm 118, this psalm. Now in Matthew's gospel, we hear that after Jesus had eaten the last supper with his uh, disciples, they sang a hymn before going to the Mount of Olives. And the probability, therefore, is that it was this psalm that they were using. And if that's right, then it was certainly very appropriate, as we shall see. But let's begin at the beginning. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. What is the, 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 the most essential thing, the, the core of reality? What's at the heart of existence? Many people these days would answer that by saying, well, nothing is. Uh, What happens to you and me in our lives is the result of chance, or perhaps the inexorable outworking of materialistic causation, perhaps with a bit of human choice thrown in. And, And King David here reminds us that that is not correct. At the heart of reality is God. And God is good. At the heart of reality lies goodness. And we must never forget that. It should be fundamental to our worldview. It it should inform our reaction to every situation. We may be in the valley of the shadow of death, to quote Psalm 23, or or, or we may be in sunlit pastures. 
But before we cry out to God, or even praise God for specific things, we need to remember we're dealing with God who is good. He exhibits, he personifies perfect truth and perfect grace, perfect justice and perfect mercy. And his love endures forever. Uh, The word translated love here uh, is the Hebrew word hesed. Uh, I I know, Helen, I mispronounce it every time, don't I? But let's do with hesed for the the moment. Now, hesed, as I've said before, is used well over 250 times in the Old Testament. But it's very difficult to translate simply. Some people translate it loving-kindness. In some places, the meaning's more akin to mercy. And indeed, in older translations of Psalm 118, you'll see it's translated mercy. Perhaps the nearest we can get to it is steadfast love. Love that's unwavering, that goes on forever, it's enduring, and which is determined, fixed, steadfast love. And David, of course, calls on everyone to give thanks to God for this goodness. We've already said it. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron, that's the priest, say his love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord, that's everyone who turns to God in repentance and faith, say his love endures forever. And I'm sure that if David were here today, he would say, let the members of St. John's Church say, his love endures forever. Should we do it one more time? Let the members of St. John's Church say, his love endures forever. Actually, we're going to do it one more time. Uh, yeah, so, so we, we, we need to do that. We must never forget that. But for the moment, let's just move on, because in verse 5, the psalm suddenly becomes much more personal. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. David clearly experienced a great crisis in his life. Verse 10, all the nations surrounded me. Verse 11, they surrounded me on every side. Verse 12, they swarmed around me like bees. Verse 13, I was pushed back and about to fall. But he also experienced a great deliverance. Verse 10, in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. It says the same in verse 11. Then verse 12, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. Verse 13, the Lord helped me. We don't know what that crisis was specifically. And we don't know precisely how the deliverance came about, but it really doesn't matter. Because you see, David is saying simply that he experienced in a big way the goodness of God of which he has been speaking. And he sees that as an example of God's goodness, and he generalizes from it. Look at verses 8 and 9. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The key point he's getting across is that we shouldn't fear or rely on people. We should fear and rely on God. Now, I can imagine some people thinking, 
Well, you know, that's very pious, isn't it? It's all the right thing to say. But hasn't David got rather carried away? He's had a great victory, whatever it was, but he's overgeneralizing. He's being, he's being naive and, un, and unrealistic. Look at verse 6. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Well, David, they can kill you. That's what they can do to you. And lots of good people down the centuries have been killed. And David, you're just fortunate that you're not among them. Now, such a reaction would be understandable, but it totally misunderstands the depth of David's faith. You see, of course David was happy that he was still alive, but he'd seen his friends die. Look at uh, the books of Samuel, if you, if you doubt that. He'd seen his friends die, and he experienced great suffering in his own life. Indeed, he recognised that some of it was indeed sent to him by God. He wasn't one of these people who praises God for all the good things in their life, blames the devil for all the bad things, and sees the two as being in sort of equal and opposite uh, forces. No. David recognised that God was in control of all things. So could people kill him? Yes, they could, but only if God allowed it. Do you you remember that when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate said to him, don't you realize I could have you killed? And Jesus responded by saying this, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And that's true of all power and authority. David recognised that, and so he looked beyond superficial things. He looked beyond secondary causes, human causes, to the sovereign God, and so should we. Now, that requires an act of will. Trusting in God is not a matter of our emotions or a matter of our feelings, it, it, it requires that we decide to trust in God. I'm, I'm sure that many of us are or will be hard-pressed, as David was. And that may come from a variety of causes. It, it might be through external things, other people, other things, illness, for example. Or it might be from internal causes, temptations we experience or things that we've done wrong and we may find some of those things very frightening but like David we need to say I will not give way to fear I will trust in God of course having done that we then need to respond to what God does in our lives. And in this psalm, we hear about three responses of King David. First of all, verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. And then verse 18, the Lord chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. 
David acknowledged and recognized that what had happened to him was God's doing. And that, of course, and by the way, that includes that the Lord chastened him. He recognized even the bad things God was acting in. And and that requires prayerful reflection, doesn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but I do on occasions engage in prayerful reflection, and I'm often amazed by what I find. I do realize God's been working in my life, but I don't do it enough. And I suspect we all just need to do that a bit more. And then the, the second thing is David praised God, verse 19. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The second bit is verse 21. Again, we all know we should do it, don't we? But again, if you're like me, yes, you, you, you will give thanks, but sometimes days or even weeks after you really should have done. We just need to do better. And then uh, there's the third thing. Look at verse 17. I will not die, but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. I understand the great reformer, Martin Luther, had that written on the wall of his study. David didn't keep this to himself. He proclaimed what the Lord had done in his life. And we should do likewise. We we may not have things as dramatic to tell as David did. There, There may be just everyday things. But when we see and recognize the Lord working in our life, we should share it in our small groups, for example, or maybe just over coffee after the service, so that we can rejoice together in what God is doing. Now, in the case of David, the people could rejoice not merely because, uh, not merely on David's behalf, but because David's salvation brought salvation to them as well. Uh, what, what happened was a godly king was restored to Israel. Uh, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And as a result, this song contains collective praise. Look at verse 15. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And then on to verse 27. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. By the way, When David refers to the righteous, either referring to himself as righteous or other people, he is not meaning that they were sinless or or, or had done no wrong. And you see the righteous in the verse I've just quoted. Again, verse 19, open for me the gates of the righteous. Verse 20, the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. No, he's not meaning that they'd done no wrong. Uh, If you doubt that, take a look at Psalms 32 51 and 130, and if you don't remember that, have a word afterwards. David was very aware of his own wrongdoing and of the wrongdoing of the people. When he refers to the righteous, he's referring to people who themselves have acknowledged that wrongdoing, who have turned back to God for forgiveness and who have trusted in God. It's well worth reading Psalm 32 in relation to all of that. However, um, having quoted 
verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, I suspect some of you would be quite frustrated with me if I continue to focus solely on King David. Bear in mind, that verse does originally refer to King David, but in the New Testament, it is applied to Jesus. In fact, Jesus applied it to himself, and unsurprisingly, his apostles, Peter and Paul, followed his example and applied it to him. Why? Well, think about it. Jesus was the stone the builder rejected. The leaders of the Jews uh, rejected him. They condemned him, sent him to die on a cross. He was the stone the builders rejected. But he was then raised from the dead. He was raised to new life and therefore became the source of life for others. He's become the cornerstone. If we reflect on that, I think we'll soon begin to appreciate that there's an awful lot more in this psalm that applies to Jesus as well. I need, though, to be clear at this point. This psalm is not a prophecy. It was written about King David. However, the Uh, What God did for and through David pointed forward to the far greater thing that he would do for and through his anointed son, Jesus. Uh, Furthermore, we shouldn't assume that what we can do is take every experience of David and map it on to Jesus, as if Jesus' experiences exactly reflected the experiences of David. They didn't. And we shouldn't assume we can take every part of this psalm and apply it to Jesus. But the big picture is very telling. Think about it for a moment. Like David, Jesus was hard-pressed. Like David, people sought his life. Like David, he took refuge in his heavenly father and expressly said that he would not put his trust in people. Like David, he experienced a great victory. In his case, uh, victory over death itself. He rose from the dead. And, And just as David's victory brought salvation not just for him, but for God's people, so does that of Jesus. A salvation that's far more far-reaching and more fundamental than that brought about through David. Salvation over sin and death. Now, I suspect most of you here today don't need me to go into detail of that, and in any event, we will be doing so over the coming week, over Easter But it is just worth remembering. By his death, Jesus bore the punishment due for our rejection of God and our other wrongdoing, and thereby opened the way to forgiveness. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God showed that death is not the end, and that therefore we don't need to fear people or things that can merely kill us. We should not fear them, but fear the God who lies behind the world. 
when in his letter to uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul summarized it like this, quoting incidentally both Isaiah and Hosea. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can rejoice in the same way as the people who originally read David's psalm. Verse 22, the stone the builders rejected, Jesus, has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Or, Or as that last verse is more commonly translated, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In fact, there are parts of this psalm we can make our very own, use the very words. Read on. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. As pointed out earlier in the service... Some of those words were used by the people on Palm Sunday as Jesus approached Jerusalem. Verse 25, Lord save us. As Helen pointed out to us, it basically means, uh, Hosanna basically means that. It's an acclamation of praise, but it's saying, Lord save. And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord an express quote from this psalm used by the people that day. You see, the people that day knew that Jesus was their saviour and indeed is our saviour. They, they recognised that they should therefore praise him and so should we. Uh, of course, that happened a week before Jesus' death and resurrection. So the people that day didn't have the same level of understanding that we have today. I suspect they were particularly puzzled by uh, the second half of verse 27, which I left out when I quoted it a moment ago. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Sounds pretty obscure stuff. Um, it's made something more complicated by the fact that the translation we have in front of us here is very much a minority view as to what that means. The underlying Hebrew literally says, with cords bind the festival to the horns of the altar. And based on later Hebrew usage, which uses the word festival to refer to the festival sacrifice, Most experts take the view that what this means is what's written in the footnote of our Bibles. Bind the festal sacrifice with ropes and take it to the horns of the altar. In other words, take the animal that's going to be sacrificed, bind it up and take it to where it's going to be killed. Now think about it for the moment. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to which all other sacrifices point. And what happened to him? He was bound and taken to the place where he was to be killed. And and that's why Paul was able to write a few years later, 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see, the result is, again quoting Paul, that although all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's what this psalm points forward to. And we've sort of gone full circle. And right at the end of the psalm, we come back to this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the people of St. John's say, 